0: How did Walter Kenton treat you after you told me
1: that? Every time he'd come in contact with me, he'd get this look on his face. I referred to
2: it as the Oh God expression. As in, Oh God, here comes that woman with AIDS.
3: This is a key scene from the movie Philadelphia, because it's astonishingly one of the only scenes where the camera pulls away from a focus on homosexuality and AIDS to highlight the experiences of women.
1: Hi. I'm Violet Rose
3: Collins. And I'm Zach Levy-Dyer. And if you're just joining us for our podcast series, you're listening to The Other Streets of Philadelphia, a podcast series on the early AIDS crisis in the city of brotherly
1: and sisterly love.
0: Ms. Benedict, how did you contract the AIDS virus?
4: Through
1: a transfusion. I lost a lot of blood giving birth to my second child.
0: So in other words, in your case, there was no behavior on your part which caused you to be infected with the virus? It was something that you were unable to avoid, isn't that correct?
1: I guess.
4: Thank you.
2: But I don't consider myself any different from anyone else with this disease. I'm not guilty, I'm not innocent, I'm just trying to survive.
1: If you are just tuning in, we've been exploring how for all the good the movie did in spreading awareness about the AIDS crisis in the early 1990s, the movie also papered over key aspects of the pandemic and in doing so maybe did more damage to the efforts that AIDS activists in Philadelphia were actually trying to do in the city at the time of the release. Especially efforts amongst the poor women and communities of color. I
3: love this scene because it highlights how many patients with AIDS looked past how the disease was transmitted to them and looked towards each other for support.
1: Yes, at some point, it doesn't matter how you got it. It matters that people ought to care for each other and treat each other as human beings.
3: Yes, the scene is so key because it recognizes that women with AIDS exist and that women were more central to the fight against AIDS than most
1: people know. In so many ways, as caretakers, as patients, as advocates, but why do you think we have downplayed the role of women in this crisis?
3: Oh, I don't know. Likely the patriarchy.
1: Patriarchy!
3: Ugh. And the scene is so much more evil and insidious because in the story, Andy, who is suing his former employer for firing him because he has AIDS, is put on the sand and pushed to admit that he might have gotten the disease by frequenting many of the gay movie theaters in downtown Philadelphia.
1: Yes, and the lawyers working for Andy's former employers use Melissa Benedict's testimony to differentiate people with AIDS who got the disease quote-unquote innocently From those people who supposedly got the disease by being quote unquote irresponsible. Ugh.
3: Talk about using a woman's testimony to prop up the defense and protection of women to forward patriarchy and homophobia. Disgusting.
1: Exactly. And there's nothing like listening to an episode about smashing the patriarchy and homophobia. In this episode, Brooke, Victoria, Will, and Zach have produced an exciting episode on the involvement of women in the early AIDS crisis, and they are showing us how feminism was at the center of many AIDS activists' works and how the AIDS crisis itself changed feminism.
4: Thousands of angels surrounding the White House, the 65,000 that recently died, we call in your voices, for research and treatment and ending neglect that allows genocide. In
5: 1985, Anna Forbes took up activist work with the Philadelphia AIDS Task Force after her friend Robbie was diagnosed with AIDS.
4: My first reaction was that I didn't wanna do that at all because I was so burnt out from watching my friend die. And my second reaction was that I wanted to do it more than anything.
3: As a woman's health and rights activist, Anna had a particular perspective on the work she was doing.
4: What people were thought to deserve in terms of health care and support and services depended on what the public thought about their sexuality.
1: we concern for AIDS and HIV. We don't compromise except trades. Women act up, fight back by
0: AIDS.
3: Hello and welcome, I'm Will Fusting, And I'm Zach Levy-Dyer. We're the hosts of this episode of The Other Streets of Philadelphia, The Early AIDS Crisis in the City of Brotherly Love, where we're exploring feminist AIDS activists fight to achieve their vision of a healthier Philadelphia for all communities.
4: A young woman who gets uh, pregnant by accident doesn't deserve a safe legal abortion because, you know, she's just a tramp. And these guys who are dying of AIDS don't deserve care and services because they're just fags, you know, and I, thought, I realized that this was the same thing in a different coding and that it was completely consistent with the kind of work that I had been doing to go work for um, AIDS organizations.
3: That was Anna Forbes talking to Megan Reed in January of 2017 about the connection between AIDS activism and the feminist movement of the 1970s and 80s.
5: I think Anna is a really great example of an early feminist AIDS activist. She began working with the Philadelphia community in 1977, advocating for women's health and sexual health at Planned Parenthood, which was always a dream of hers. After she was laid off due to budget cuts by the Reagan administration, she started working for various AIDS nonprofit organizations. Her entry into AIDS activism is not so different from some other feminist activists of the time.
4: Uh, And the other was that my friend Robbie had been diagnosed with AIDS, and I was uh, among a small circle of about six people who were his primary caregivers. Uh, So when I went to work for Action AIDS in uh, Well, when Action Aids, it wasn't Action Aids at the time, it was uh, Philadelphia Aids Task Force, Uh, but they posted an announcement for uh, recruiting for uh, the first uh, full-time case manager uh, to work in HIV AIDS in Philadelphia. it It was interesting. What occurred to me was that what I had been doing at Planned Parenthood and what this work in AIDS would be like was essentially the same thing.
3: Anna transformed her experience as a caretaker of a person with AIDS and as an activist for women's health into an active role in the burgeoning AIDS activism movement. In this episode, we're tackling a big question that often gets overlooked. How did women fight to contribute in the ways they desired during the AIDS pandemic in Philadelphia, despite facing various forms of exclusion?
4: It's a story of my life. Hello, I'm this little white, straight white girl. <laughs> Come to help you with what your controversial cause. No, I am not one of you. I will never be one of you. I know that, but I want to be your ally.
5: At the same time as Planned Parenthood began free AIDS slash HIV testing and establishing an AIDS outreach program, President Reagan proposed the Title 10 gag rule, which forbid Planned Parenthood and other family planning centers from counseling patients about abortions. Even with the government setback.
3: Planned Parenthood still strived to help AIDS-infected communities. As Katie Batza details in her book, Before AIDS, Gay Health Politics in the 1970s, clinics provided physical space for patients, volunteers, and practitioners. Clinics contributed an opportunity to patients to become activists, which sparked many organizations' emergence during the 1970s.
5: Once Anna's dream of working for Planned Parenthood fell through, she continued her journey with advocacy by using her privilege to help her community during the AIDS pandemic through working with ACT UP and Prevention Point. Early Prevention Point held free
3: illegal syringe exchanges, which Anna pushed the Board of Health and Mayor to legalize. She created fact sheets and tried to educate the community and Board of Health.
4: Saturday morning, Walter and I were out in a a cafe having breakfast together and I got this uh, Beep, because you know we had beepers at that point, and um, I called the office, and they said, "Oh my God, the state, the, the state police are going to, uh, are about to go out and arrest the folks at Prevention Point. We got to do something." And uh, fortunately, I happened to know somebody who was there and how to get a, get in touch with them on the site, and I had to call up Prevention Point on the site and say, "Quick, you got to pack up and get out of there. The state police are headed to torch you."
5: and his efforts weren't wasted. Jose Benitez from Prevention Point Philadelphia speaks about the impact of the early needle exchanges. The structural ways that we sort of prevent people from becoming HIV positive within the IV drug use community is through the needle exchange program. And the needle exchange program started around 20 years ago when in Philadelphia, 49% 49% of the cases were from people sharing needles. That's a huge amount back in the early 90s. We just finished looking at the 2008 data and 12% are from new IDU cases. So it went from like almost 50% to with this one structural intervention.
3: Anna's activism and harm reduction within Philadelphia communities has aided the city for decades, including present day. Now we're going to jump to 1991 with an excerpt from the inquiry. In Philadelphia, a class action suit filed yesterday in federal court alleges that Social Security officials improperly adopted the CDC's definition of AIDS as the standard for determining who qualifies for disability benefits. The complaint was filed by a group of Philadelphians with the AIDS virus who were denied disability benefits because their symptoms were not on the CDC list.
5: And as we will hear from Dan Royals, author of To Make the Wounded Whole, The African-American Struggle Against HIV-AIDS, and assistant professor at Florida International University in Miami, this deliberate exclusion of women from anything AIDS-related was not just happening in Philadelphia, but all around the United States during the early AIDS epidemic. Women with AIDS to access treatment in comparison to their male counterparts.
0: When we're talking about particularly the first 12 years of the epidemic, probably the main obstacle to women accessing services or treatment is that they could not get an AIDS diagnosis by and large because the way that the disease was defined by the Centers for Disease Control was premised on the way that the disease presented in men, in specifically gay men. So, The women specific infections that come with advanced HIV disease or AIDS, pelvic inflammatory disease, cervical cancers, repeated yeast infections, men don't experience. So you have women who had really advanced HIV disease and debilitating opportunistic infections could not get an AIDS diagnosis. And so they could not access the AIDS housing, the you know, welfare services, disability, any of the things that, any of those, those kind of social safety net programs that had come into place to provide some kind of support or care to people with AIDS. Until 1993, you know, they were largely um, out, out of women's reach and it took really concerted organizing by women and some male allies to force that change in the CDC in the case definition of AIDS.
5: So women couldn't reap any of the benefits that men with AIDS at the time had access to, since their conditions simply didn't count as AIDS.
3: Exactly. And this placed women at an extreme economic disadvantage in comparison to their male counterparts. In one article, Gendering the Epidemic, Feminism and the Epidemic of HIV-AIDS in the United States, Evelyn Hammond shows us that race was a factor as well. The largest percentage of the cases in women involved women of color, both African-American and Latina. In most cases, AIDS in fact intensified questions many feminists had been asking since the late 1970s. When we say we are feminists, who are the we and at what price?
5: We should have included all women but it was obvious that this was not the case. At the same time as the definitional exclusion, came another form of exclusion.
0: The problems facing women with HIV went far beyond the CDC. For Dixon Diallo and other feminist activists, the case definition was just one way that sexism shaped the study and treatment of AIDS. Women of childbearing age were excluded from clinical trials of experimental AIDS drugs out of concern that the medications might harm any fetus they could conceive in the future. Pregnant women with HIV were counseled to have abortions on one hand, but denied services by abortion providers on the other. At the same time, news media reported on women with AIDS as, quote, reservoirs of disease, waiting to infect male partners. Furthermore, the notion of woman-to-woman transmission was nowhere to be found in the AIDS science agenda, as noted in the ACT UP chant, CDC, can't you see? Lesbians get HIV. All in all, women with HIV were treated only as vectors of disease that might infect straight men or the unborn, but not as people deserving of a healthy life in their own right. And so the way that AIDS among women had been talked about, especially during like the first decade of the epidemic, was in terms of women as carriers of the disease, um, who would pass it on to male partners or to their unborn children, rarely were women talked about as fully human people suffering from and dying of AIDS.
5: Professor Dan Rolls makes a great point here that is echoed in the book, Women as Vessels and Vectors, Lessons from the HIV Epidemic, by Ruth Faden, Nancy Cass, and Devin McGraw.
2: There were no major studies
5: sponsored by the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases investigating the epidemic in women other than in their roles as mothers or prostitutes. The only significant interest in women in the huge national research effort on AIDS concerned women's potential to infect others, either as sexual partners, especially as prostitutes, or, more significantly, as gestators. The health interests of women themselves largely were ignored. The refusal by the government to listen to women was all too familiar for feminists at the time, like Anna Forbes who had been a reproductive rights activist prior to working to bring attention to the broader AIDS crisis.
3: The obstacles here seem never ending. Anna spoke about trying to break into the field of AIDS activism and her surprise regarding the blatant sexism she experienced at the hands of gay men.
4: I had this wackadoo idea when I went into doing AIDS work that somehow uh, gay men were going to be less sexist than straight men. Not so much. (laughs) Doesn't really apply.
5: Even being seriously considered as a candidate for the position was a battle for Anna.
3: Right. Those who worked at the AIDS task force struggled to see how a woman could do anything beneficial for AIDS activism.
4: When they interviewed me for the job uh, at Action AIDS, no, well, it was Philadelphia AIDS task force, uh, one of the, you know, it was almost entirely men at that point. Um, and one of the questions they asked me was, you know, how can we get more, invent, more women involved in, in the task force? And I said, hire me. I said, you, you, don't, you can't get women to volunteer unless you have women in leadership positions. You have to show publicly that this is something that women do and that it's something that, you know, is very open and welcom- welcoming to women.
5: And Anna showed in her years as an AIDS activist just how necessary women were in caretaking, in organizing, and in being key voices in the AIDS activist movement. But all of this takes an
3: intense toll on a person, regardless of their gender.
4: AIDS, I was the first staff member for Action AIDS, working on the promise of the salary. We didn't have money. Although they got money together really quickly. I have to give them a lot of credit for that. Um, so I was the first full-time staff person there. Uh, and then in eighty. Seven, I think, or 88, I can't remember. Um, I just, I had big burnout. I, um, we had, by that time, we had hired a couple more case managers and I was just running the buddy system, but, uh, and Jim Latrell was working as the director of uh, Action Aids, and you know, I had, we're, I was working with a lot of great volunteers, but I just had had one death too many. <laughs> And I found myself hiding under my desk one night when I was the last person at the office and just crying my eyes out. I I couldn't figure out what to do next Um, because I didn't want to get out of doing AIDS work. But I just realized that I couldn't. I was up around 200 deaths at that time, and I realized I just couldn't continue this. Wow,
5: you know, we talk about burnout in activist communities today, but I can only imagine how much strength it must have taken to come back after that and continue working in another capacity.
3: And I think the important thing to remember is that Anna's experience wasn't a unique one.
0: When you are in a movement that is, that is about confronting death and disease and all the various forms of state and social violence that um, contribute to... HIV and AIDS—that is really psychologically and emotionally difficult to to deal with. And so, you know, some of the folks that I talked to, um, or that I did oral histories with, you know, talk about moments of intense burnout, of of, of waking up and not wanting to get out of bed, of just waking up one morning and being like, "I'm done," because I cannot do this anymore because it is hard it is hard work and it is work that is never compensated to the degree that it needs to be being surrounded
3: by so much grief and for women like anna taking care of others while watching those people die must have been a huge burden to bear
5: And yet, in many ways, it was the actions of these women that motivated the AIDS activist community across the country. It was women's
3: experience in the feminist movements of the 1970s that really created the framework which AIDS organizations could build from.
5: Yes, I mean, Anna directly connects her experience working with Planned Parenthood to the work she did at the Philadelphia AIDS Task Force
4: what people were thought to deserve in terms of health care and support and services depended on what the public thought about their sexuality and their behavior around sex. You know, and I I realized that this was the same thing in a different coding and that it was completely consistent with the kind of work that I had been doing to go work for um, AIDS organizations
5: and it wasn't just white women already entrenched in the white gay community that influenced AIDS activism.
4: Yes,
3: exactly. Since many women with AIDS and women impacted by loved ones having AIDS were women of color, they also had to grapple with other systems of power which influenced their path to activism.
0: The assertion of the right of women with HIV and AIDS to make choices about their health and reproduction connected feminist AIDS activists not only to the reproductive rights movement, but specifically to the ways that movement took shape among women of color. At a time when many feminists of color were frustrated by the narrow focus of middle-class white feminists on access to abortion, contributors to women, AIDS, and activism highlighted the larger issues of bodily autonomy at play. They've linked the status of women of color and poor women with AIDS to histories of eugenics and forced sterilizations, which had been used for generations to rob black, Latina and Native American women of the right to have children. They argued that the ways in which women of color had historically been denied bodily autonomy were perpetuated in the testing and treatment of women with HIV, the majority of whom were women of color.
3: And going forward, It is these voices that are the most important to listen to in Philadelphia and worldwide. Absolutely.
5: And while it's a bit more contemporary, I think Zonable Woods made a good point on this at the 2008 International AIDS Conference in Mexico City.
2: Millions of women and girls that are affected by HIV are not counted in official estimates of this epidemic. This renders invisible, in many ways, the great toll of the epidemic on women. If only what gets measured matters, when do women count? What do these submissions say about the value that we place in the girls and women who care for the sick, the grandmothers caring for their children's children? The women living with HIV, who with great courage and often with little support, are mothers, heads of households, farmers, income earners, and healthcare providers. This too needs to be measured as the world seeks to understand the true impact. The last 25 years of fighting HIV has taught us that no biomedical intervention will succeed unless we put human rights and women's human rights at the center of the response.
4: I am at the point after decades of going to conferences and everything else where I am feeling as though the solution is political and it's structural. You know, it, I'm getting so sick of conferences that are solely biomedically focused.
5: It's no surprise that Anna would feel burned out with five medical solutions, and her desire to get involved in new types of activism, like rights for sex workers, may have aided in relieving her burnout somewhat.
3: Yes, and Anna found a new avenue for that line of activism as well.
4: I realized that what I really wanted to do was to work on sex workers' rights and bringing sex workers' rights organizations together with aid service organizations uh, in an attempt to give them more clout and more political leverage and also in order to educate aid service organizations about how they sh- could be and should be re- reaching out and providing sex worker friendly services
5: and I had a very straightforward idea for what had to be done
4: the idea is to pick three to five cities in the country uh... where sex worker rights organizations are still very nascent and very new and don't have a lot of clout um... and to try to pair them with Uh, an AIDS services organization that's interested in collaborating with them and then doing cross-education so that we educate the AIDS services organization about how they can better provide services to people living with HIV, or uh, to sex workers living with HIV and sex workers at risk of HIV.
3: Anna realized that her unique background in AIDS activism fit well with her aspirations for sex work
4: activism. So if I didn't have the AIDS background, I would probably, and I wanted to work with the sex worker rights world, I'd probably be working on something else. I wouldn't be working on trying to build this liaison. But since this liaison is what I have, it's the tool I have to work with, and I think it is a legitimate argument that they can be and should be involved in this, then that's what I'm doing.
5: Anna's plans for her work characterize her as a caretaker.
3: She aspired to lift up the voices that were so often silenced.
4: The first thing, the basic thing, the rock-bottom thing is helping people to advocate for themselves because they're the only ones who know what they need. Nobody else does. You know, I don't know what sex workers need. Sex workers have to tell me what they need because I don't know. Um, the premise was exactly right. Uh, the problem is that it is always in any movement extremely difficult to get people all ginned up and excited and uh, you know on fire about their demands and what they need and then keep going in a continuous slow uphill slog to try to get there it's real
5: this podcast has been made by a very talented team and thanks needs to be given the podcast has been produced by our team Brooke Hammond, victoria Stavropoulos. Will Fusting, and Zach Levy-Dyer. Sound design in this episode has been done by Will Fusting, and voice acting by Brooke Haman, Victoria Stavropoulos, and Brenda Dyer. Thanks to our series hosts, Zach Levy-Dyer and Violet Rose Collins. The Other Streets of Philadelphia, the early AIDS crisis in the city of early love, is a project in which myself and other hosts explore early AIDS history in Philadelphia through oral histories told by those who are at the forefront of the movement these histories are brought to you by the john wilcox library philadelphia's most extensive collection of personal papers organizations records periodicals audiovisual material and ephemera documenting the rich history of our lgbtq community we here thank you for your time and hope you tune into the rest of the episodes as well